Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful day which you have made. And as you have made this day for us, I pray that we will live this day for you. Lord, I pray that you remove from our minds extraneous thoughts, anything that would be confusing. We ask you to bind the evil one that he will not be able to cause any uh, distractions this morning as we study your word. I ask that you will focus our hearts on truth. Jesus said that he is the truth and that if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Lord, we desire freedom in Christ, freedom to live for your glory. And Father, I pray that throughout the Sunday school this morning in every class that you will be present and in the concurrent service. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin reading at Numbers chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. These then were their names, from the tribe of Benjamin, Shamua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Horai, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulon, Gadiel, the son of Sadi, from the tribe of Joseph, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Bafsi, from the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Maki. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Well, we have brought Israel from Mount Sinai to the wilderness of Paran. And now they have come to the point where they're going to spy out the land. And we know, we've heard so often about the spying of the land. And we've heard messages, and we've read this account, and we've had lessons uh, on this. But there's a tremendous <coughs> amount of important truth in this 13th chapter and the 14th chapter relative to belief and obedience. So really a crucible here. The logical questions that would come to our mind here, I think, would be, first of all, why did God authorize this reconnaissance? Knowing what the outcome would be. We always are reminded of the fact that God knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what they're going to do. So why does he authorize this? Why does he just not pick that cloud up and just lead him into Canaan? You know, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, you guys follow it. They've been following it. And, and we read the passage before, a couple of weeks ago, that wherever the cloud went, they followed. Why didn't he just go into the land and take them in? Why does he do this? I think the answer is partly found in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. Let me read a few verses from the first chapter of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 19. 
Moses is, is recounting the, the history of Israel here in the wilderness, and he says, Then we set out from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw, on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us, that we may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. And the thing pleased me. So I took twelve of your men, one from each tribe. As you look at this passage, we see a little bit more than is given to us here in the, uh, in the, numbers, in the numbers passage. It appears from this Deuteronomy statement that it was the idea of the people first. That it wasn't God just out of the blue saying to Moses, okay, you've gotten to this place, so now go spot the land. It's that the people came to Moses and said, why don't we go and, and send men through the land that we might find the way by which we should go into the land. And Moses said that the idea pleased him. The implication is that they would discover the best invasion route. That was the implication of what the spying was all about. It wasn't that they were supposed to discover whether or not they could do it, but the route by which they were going to do it. As we read in this 13th chapter of Numbers, though, it seems to imply that Moses didn't just say, oh, that's a good idea, let's do it, that Moses did what he always did, and that is he went to God and said, this is the idea of the people, is this a good idea or not? And then God authorizes the espionage to take place and even told him whom to send as spies into the land. You'll discover as you read through the life of Moses that it's a rare occasion when Moses just acts without seeking God's direction first. No matter how small or how big the decision seems to be, Moses goes to God in prayer. It's a powerful example to us, I think. Uh, we have a tendency to pray only when things really look bad. You know, When all else fails, pray, right? Uh, we've heard that many times. Uh, that isn't Moses' approach to things. Moses' approach is go to God first and, and find out his direction in this matter, uh, no matter how small the situation may seem to be. Now, even if it seemed like a good idea to Moses, and it seemed like a good idea to the people, the question still remains, why did God sanction this reconnaissance knowing that from it would come the refusal of the people to go into the land. They will just get their hackles up and say, no to God. Well, I think that there may be at least three reasons that we can search out and discover here. Uh, certainly God's ways are beyond our ways, and there's no way we're going to understand all of God's thinking here. But at least in part here, I think, first of all, as you'll see on your outline there, that one of God's reasons was to demonstrate the reality of His grace. 
And this, I think, is a very, very important concept. God reveals his power. God reveals his love. God reveals his mercy. He does it by action. He does it by word. He proclaims it to his people. He demonstrates it day by day and through the history of his people. But he will not force his people to love and obey him. He never has. He never will. He does not force you. He does not force me to love him or to obey him. We must do so because we have chosen to do so. We must willingly trust and obey. God does not make us into robots that just walk around here programmed with a certain program and we can only do what God says for us to do. No, we all know that that's not true because every one of us is subject to disobedience and to sin. I'd like to read, it's not on your outline here, but I'd like to read a passage from the ninth chapter of Deuteronomy relative to this. Ninth chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 4. Moses, again, is, is talking about uh, what God is going to do. He says, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, that's the Canaanites, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of, the, of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Well, that's an indictment, of course. And it's also a statement that they could not say, Aha, God has given us the land because we are his chosen people. And of all the people in the world, we are worthy. No. God gave them the land out of his grace. God gave them the land because he, he, the, you know, he had judged the Amorites. And their time was fulfilled. And it was time for them to be wiped off the planet. But he also fulfilled it because of his oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God always fulfills his oaths, his covenants. And so he brought them into the land by his grace. And so he allows them to spy out the land so that they can choose. Are we going to obey or are we not? Secondly, I think that he allowed this to happen so that it would clearly reveal who were the true people of faith. Until faith is tried... Faith is not proven. That's why we have trials in this life. It's, not, it, it's, it's an easy thing to profess faith if all is going well. Uh, it's an easy thing to profess faith if we can see how we will surmount the obstacles that are ahead of us. I may have mentioned this before, but um, in the 3rd century and in the 4th century, there were major persecutions which broke out against the church in the Roman Empire. And there were thousands of people in the church who became apostate 
because of the persecution. That is, they left the church, they denied the faith because they didn't want to die for the faith. Then later, when it was all over and things returned to normal, many of them wanted back into the church. And the church became split over this issue. The church at Rome said, hey, let them all back in. Who are we to judge? The church in North Africa said, let them prove that they are now people of faith before we allow them to return in the folds of the church. And out of this came the Novation and the Donatist schisms within, within the church. And, and the North African church and, and the church at Rome in the northern, in the northern side of the uh, empire be, became split over this issue. People, as we'll see, who had, who had great walled cities, who had armies, who had chariots, who had cavalry, who, who were a prepared people. And, and Israel was just a bunch of nomads coming out of the desert. So who were they uh, to deal with these uh, powerful Canaanite people? And so as the Israelites looked at these obstacles, the obstacles just seemed insurmountable. And they couldn't see any way to surmount them. Therefore, they said, we can't do it. But there were five people who said we could do it. And they, of course, were Moses and Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, and we assume also Miriam, were, were believers. And, and we don't know how many of those 20, under, under 20 years of age may have believed, but uh, we know those over 20 certainly didn't. The situation was nearly as bad as it was in the days of Noah, in the sense that there were very few obedient people, very few who believed. You know, as you read through Scripture, you could really be discouraged, <laughs> thinking, wow, there have been so few who have really been followers of God. And, you know, it just kind of blows our understanding today, particularly in our pluralistic society in America, where we have to kind of accept everybody. And, you know, if somebody says, hey, I go to church, and, you know, I've been confirmed and baptized, therefore they are a believer. No, you know, God is the one who knows. We don't know who all is a believer. Calvin used to say, there, there's no way that you can know for sure whether someone else is a believer, but you can listen to his testimony, you can be sure that he's baptized, and you can watch his life. And you can have a, a, a good idea, but of course, ultimately, only God knows who is a true believer. The trials that have come upon the church during the past 2,000 years and the trials which will yet come upon the church have served to demonstrate the reality of who is a true believer and who is not. In 1 John chapter 2, we read these words, and to me they're very, very profound and insightful. They help me to understand things that are otherwise seemingly uh, imponderable. John says, Children... It is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were really not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. I may have mentioned this before, but years ago when I, I was working moonlighting down in the Bay Area, uh, I was uh, in a building and this woman was riding the elevator with me and she had this necklace on and she had a picture of, 
of Bhagwan Rajneesh. Remember that guy up in Oregon who was Indian guru and everything? And I started talking to her about that, and she says, oh, she says, I was a born-again Baptist, and, but, but this I have found to be the truth. You know, and, and this verse <laughs> explains to me how that can be. How could someone who, if, if, how could someone who was truly born again, how could that person now follow a Hindu guru? Well, this verse tells us. They went out from us because they really were not of us. There are many, many people in the church around the world today who are in the church, but they are not of the church. They're in the institution of the church, but they're not in the church with the capital C, the church of the living God. They've never been born again. Oh, they may have raised their hand and, and said a little prayer, but there was no transformation in their hearts because there was no spirit of repentance, no spirit uh, of, of humility. You can't come into the kingdom of God except by repentance and humility. There isn't any other way. You know, we can't come barging into the kingdom of God and say, hey, God, you've got to take me because I'm such a good guy. You need me. Yeah, right. They went out from us because they were not of us. And this is going to happen, I think, as pressure increases in these days, particularly here in America. I think it's going to get worse, not better. And I think the purification process will be underway. And I mean, it's always going on. But I think it's going to be going on in a lot more obvious manner. You know, the enemy is always at work. No matter how good times may be, the enemy is still at work. And any true believer is, is suffering persecution from God, no matter how good the times might be otherwise. But I, I think major changes are going to occur where the pressure is going to be increased. And uh, it'll be a refining process. But, you know, as we look at that, we might think, oh, no, I don't want to do that, <laughs> you know. But, but we have to realize God is with us through it all. You know, as, as you read through the 11th chapter of Hebrews and you wonder, how could people put up with being sawn in two, you know, fried on great griddles, as some of them were? How could you do that? I mean, how could you possibly maintain your faith and put up with that kind of, of physical persecution? And the answer is God's grace. God is there. And I've, I've heard you know, testimony of some who have actually survived persecution like that. They said, hey, I was like, I was, in, I was up floating around looking back at my body. You know, I, God was there and God carried them through this. And I think that's where God demonstrates his faithfulness to his people. I think a, a third possible reason that God allowed the spies to be sent into the land was to prove to the next generation, those 19 on down, that failure to trust God and to obey his commands would result in destruction. That human wisdom and effort are inadequate and will ultimately lead to failure and death. Solomon wrote so many brilliant things, as you well know, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but a couple of them just, to me, are profound, and you know them well. In Proverbs 14, 12, we read, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And if you don't see that today all around, if you can't see it, then, you know, then you're, you've got your head in the sand. I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. And, and back in the 12th proverb, he said, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. You could just write that little phrase out and glue it to your television set. You know? 
Be because there is so much foolishness. I'm not just talking the made-up stuff, but in the news. There's so much foolishness. All these people who, who think their way is right, who denigrate God and denigrate the Bible and denigrate the church and, and, and you know, Victorian ethics and Victorian morals. You know, it, it's as if man has evolved beyond all of that. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Political correctness. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. I mean, you can just go on and on and on and on. And, and that's what we're seeing today uh, in this country. And it was true of Israel. These ten spies, we're going to discover, were fools. And they thought their way was right. But it led to death and to destruction. Dying in the wilderness. The wilderness that Moses had just described in, the, in Deuteronomy as that terrible wilderness. And yet they would spend another 38 years in it because of their folly. Israel had traveled about 200 miles from Sinai to the point from which the spies were sent out. Now we're told in this passage that we read in Numbers 13 that the spies were sent out from the wilderness of Paran. Now the wilderness of Paran is a very large area. It covers much of the northern Sinai. So that's kind of a big site from which they went. But if you remember the passage I read at the beginning, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it narrowed it way down, in fact, to a specific site. It said they were at Kadesh Barnea. Now, Kadesh Barnea is a true oasis in the desert. There's abundant water there. In fact, there's so much water at Kadesh Barnea that the Bedouins of that area said, this has got to be the work of the gods. Therefore, they called it Kadesh, Holy Barnea. Nobody today knows for sure what the word Barnea meant, but they know Kadesh means holy, the holy place, because God has provided this abundant water in the desert, springs in the desert, provided by God. From this oasis at Kadesh Barnea, it's about 60 miles north to Beersheba. And the spies would leave Kadesh Barnea, and the first place they would go most likely was Beersheba to begin their reconnaissance of the land. God directed Moses as to which men should be chosen to be the spies. They were to be the leading elder from each of the 12 tribes. And we read their names at the beginning of class. These 12 men were the most respected individuals in each of their tribes. And they were to be sent out because the people of each tribe would have faith that their elder is going to tell them the truth. He had proven himself to be a man of, of wisdom and ability, and therefore uh, he was the right man to be sent out. Their job was not to discover whether Israel could conquer the land, but what was the best route by which the conquest would occur. It's a big difference. At least three things should be noted, I think, here relative to this. First of all, Twelve men were chosen who had demonstrated the true leadership within their tribe. They had the opportunity to demonstrate faith and courage. And if they demonstrated faith and courage, they would no longer be leaders of their respective tribe. They would be national leaders. They would be like the twelve apostles or the twelve disciples who would have stood alongside Moses and Aaron and led the people into the land had they been men of faith and courage, men of obedience. 
But what we discover is 10 of the men were men of little faith. In fact, you could say of no faith. And I really believe that's the truth. No faith in the living God. I don't think it was just a matter of they were scared and they weren't really sure. I think it was a matter of absolutely closed mind. We cannot do this. God cannot take us into this land. Why were they intimidated? Why did they make this decision? They were intimidated by the big three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, I've asked this question at other times when we've talked about specific events. Where in the world would Satan have been at that moment? He, is he going to be off in Timbuktu? No. Is he going to be down in New Guinea somewhere dealing with the primitive tribes down there? No, they're already locked in the darkness, heathen darkness. Where would Satan be? He'd be right there at Kadesh Barnea. He would follow those men along right on through the promised land because that's where the action was. That's where God was asking for these people to demonstrate faith. So that's where the enemy would be. Not off fooling around with, with people who are already on, their, on the road to hell, but trying to dissuade others from belief in God. He works overtime to do that. And so what these men did not become was the 12 apostles or disciples of Moses, but what they became were leaders of apostasy, leaders of the people into rebellion and disbelief and disobedience. To God. And there are passages in Isaiah, which I, I didn't take the time to look up, kind of ran out of time, uh, but passages in Isaiah which tell you that, woe be to the shepherd who leads the flock astray. Woe be to that shepherd. We could ask the question, since God led Moses as to which men to choose, why didn't God lead Moses to better men to choose? Well, I think as we read on, particularly in the 14th chapter, we will discover that faithlessness was universal and that there weren't any better choices. Secondly, we discover something about Joshua here. <clears throat> we discover that Joshua's given name was Hoshea, which meant deliverer. But Moses, as he associated with this man, and as Joshua became his right-hand man, so to speak, Moses changed his name a little bit and made it, rather than Hoshea, he made it Yeshua. He put Yah on the front, Yahweh. He changed it from deliverer to Yahweh deliverers because Joshua will not be the man who delivers Israel, but it'll be God who delivers Israel through Joshua. And Joshua understood that, and Joshua gave credit to the living God for delivering Israel. He was God's man to step into the sandals of Moses. And in fact, you all well know that it will be this name that will be born by Messiah. Messiah's name will be Joshua, Yeshua, in Greek, Jesus. Yahweh delivers. I mean, even in his name, we discover his, his reality as God. He is Yahweh giving deliverance. That is Jesus. Thirdly, we discover from this passage that two men of the, ten, of the twelve uh, spies would stand up for the truth. And they, of course, were Joshua and Caleb. 
But we discover something else about them, and it's kind of interesting. Joshua was the leader of the tribe of Judah, and Caleb was the leader of the tribe of Ephraim. And if you go ahead and study in, into the kings, you discover that the day will come when the southern part of the kingdom of Israel will be known as Judah, and the northern part will be known as Ephraim. Those will be the two dominant tribes. And, and over and over again in, in, the, um, in the prophecies, in the prophets, when referring to the northern kingdom, uh, their prophet will use the term Ephraim, 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 oh, Ephraim, if you had but followed me. And, and to the southern kingdom as Judah. So you can't say they didn't have their opportunities. <laughs> I mean, right here at the very beginning, Joshua and Caleb, the two great men of faith, leaders of those two great tribes. Verse 17 of Numbers 13. When Moses sent them out, sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How, and how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort, then, to get some fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. You know, there, there are people who, who attack the scripture as, as just being a lot of mythology, a lot of oral tradition all stuck together, and, and that there's nothing solid in it to deal with. But you keep running across statements like this in scripture, which nails it down, and it was the time of ripening grapes. Why would it say that, you know, if, if there wasn't, uh, if, if it wasn't an effort to tie this to reality, to know that this is history. This is the history of God's people. This is not somebody's mythology here. Moses, we discover, carefully instructs the men where they were to make this reconnaissance. He says, first of all, go up into the Negev, which means the south. It's a stepland down where Beersheba was located. It's kind of an open area, relatively flat. Uh, parts of it are grassy. And, and as you proceed north through the Negev, you, you begin to rise into the hill country of, of Judea. And that's what they were to do. They were to cross the Negev, and then they were to go up into the hill country of Judea and to begin to spy out the land. And, and he told them to make special notice of certain things. He said, make special notice of the military strength of the Canaanites and of the economic strength of the land. Make careful note of this. Now, this is not because Moses doesn't know what's going on here. I mean, Moses already knew from revelation from the living God that the land was rich and bountiful and that God would drive out the inhabitants. He wasn't worried about that. Let's look at a couple of statements in Deuteronomy that help us to understand this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning at verse 17 if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm 
by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. And notice this 21st verse. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, the great and awesome God. And we can write that over the doorway of the church. We're not to be afraid of them. Them being any enemy, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil can be the them. That is the them <laughs> that we have to deal with. We are not to be afraid of them because the Lord our God who is right here in this room right this minute is the great and awesome God. And then in chapter 8, beginning at verse 7, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land full of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall lack nothing, not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And Moses wasn't scouting out the land to find out whether it was worth taking. Even though, you know, as you read this, you, you might ask, why does Moses give them this instruction? Why doesn't he just say, hey guys, go forth, have a good time, come back and tell us about the good time you had? You know, it's, it's as if he's a general trying to determine whether or not he could actually conquer this land and whether or not it was worth it. But that is not the reason he sent him forth, because he already knew it was worth it. He already knew God had commanded it. He knew God was able, that God would deliver the land in their hands. So why does he do it? Well, I think the obvious reason that Moses sent these men to spy out the land and to take notice of all these things was that Moses had reached the point where he knew that his faith alone would not carry Israel through the conquest. This people had to believe God for themselves and had, had to join as one with Moses if this conquest was going to happen. The church united is the church triumphant. The church divided is the church defeated. The church needs to move together as one in faith and commitment and above all prayer for the kingdom of God to be achieved as God ordains it to be. Moses could not carry them any longer on his back. They had to agree. They had to join their faith with his faith. And so he was going to give them every chance to have a well-founded faith. God does, not, God does not try to trick us into the kingdom by saying, ah, oh, there's going to be this wonderful, wonderful heaven, and you just join my kingdom and you're going to have this heaven, but I'm not going to tell you about the trouble you're going to have along the way. You know? well, no. That's not how God is. God wants us to buy into the package knowing entirely what the package includes. And that's what's happening here with Israel. They are going to make their decision based on the facts. They are going to know the facts, and they're going to know all the facts. They're going to know the strength of the land, the weakness of the land, the fruitfulness of the land, whatever poverty is in the land. They're going to know about the big cities and the mighty armies and all the rest of it. 
And if they're going to choose to follow God, they're going to choose on the basis of knowing all the facts. And they're either going to step out in bold, believing faith and succeed, or they're going to shy away in fear and face the consequences of disbelief and disobedience. I think that's what we need to face and, and think about relative to the church and, and relative to our own faith. There are only two places to stand, either in bold, believing faith or in fear and disobedience. Those are the only two places there are. We can't stand in the middle. There is no middle. And I, I think probably most of the time we're kind of more on the fear side than we are on the bold, believing faith side. And God being very, very uh, merciful will, you know, carry us along here. But there's a point at which he's going to want us to either fish or cut bait. And um, that's what pers where persecution comes in. It forces us to uh, fly the flag that's true. It's kind of interesting here that Moses says to the spies, go ahead. I was just thinking, as a counselor so often, that's where people are too. They, they know what the answer is, but they don't know how to get there. They know what God wants, but they want God to do with the land, the promised land, the same thing that he did with the Egyptians. We have to give up vengeance, we have to give up bitterness, we have to give up trying to make it work our own way. And we say, no God, I want you to fix it all for me. And then I'll believe in you. And God is saying, no, I want you to believe that my way is best and I want you to do what I tell you to do each step of the way. And what gets in the way of people changing and people becoming what God wants them to be is that, that ability to say to God, okay, not only will I believe in you, not only will I say that whether I can understand it or not, your way is best, but I will do what you tell me to do when it looks hopeless yeah. and when I don't think it's going to work. And we keep thinking that God's got to fix it like he did before the promised land instead of being willing to be with him in that spiritual battle as we go through and maintain the promised land. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good application and insight because when they did conquer the land, God didn't just say, oh, walk into the land and they didn't just parade through the land. They didn't go in a triumphal march. They had to fight battles. They had to face the foe. They had to do the hard work. Good. Thank you. As, as we read in, in, in the passage in Deuteronomy, God emphasized the fact that this is what I did for you in Egypt, and this should be the basis of your faith. Now you're going to have to walk hand in hand with me in that faith. And, uh, of course, they, re they refused to do that. Let me, let me just give you uh, one other insight here, and then we'll pick up uh, beginning at verse 21 next week. We, we discover here that one of the statements that Moses makes is that the spies were to make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Get some of the fruit of the land. The point of this is that Moses wanted their decision to be based not just on hearing the words of the spies, but seeing the tangible fruit of the land. Something that would actually illustrate that this is a fruitful land into which they were going. They had griped and griped and griped about the manna. So Moses thought, well, if we bring them some good fruit of the land and they see all these grapes and figs and pomegranates, they're going to say, wow, let's do it. I mean, you know, Moses just kind of 
stacking it a little bit on the favorable side here. But that's okay. That's the truth. <laughs> it's the truth of the land. The truth for us is Jesus gives us the victory. The truth is we will one day be in heaven with him. The truth is, as if you, any of you heard Lutzer this morning, the, the, the truth is <clears throat> that real justice is coming. The day is coming when no one will, will, will be able to trick the system. True justice will occur to the last little jot and tittle. That's the fruit of the land. Do we want to go in or not? Do we want to step out in bold, believing faith and succeed? Or do we want to shy away in fear and suffer the consequences of unbelief and disobedience? Then at the very end it says, and they went in at the time of the first ripe, ripe grapes, which tells us the spies went in in July. Well, next week we will begin at verse 21 of Numbers 13.